time, that day that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a colt. It was quite a spectacle. See, he had poked around town uh, a bunch of times before, and I just think that that day he came into town was the day that people really started to pay attention. There was a lot of activity going on downtown because everybody was getting ready for the Passover, and there was a lot of buzz, a lot of, a lot of debate, especially in the circles I traveled, debate about Jesus. And I think that's what made me so surprised to see how the people responded when he came into town. They, they cheered for him. They celebrated him. They loved him. It, it had all the feeling of a, a political rally. I think the thing that, that um, was interesting is that it's almost like everybody was trying to jump on the bandwagon. Like they wanted a little piece of his celebrity. But the thing that blew me away was just how quickly he became unpopular after that day. It, it was just a matter of days. And those same people who, who were cheering for him when he came into town, those people who loved him, all of a sudden they wanted him dead. It was unbelievable. I guess even myself, I, I'm kind of I'm tossed about him. I have mixed feelings about Jesus because, you know, for one thing, the man always spoke in riddles. Like he was trying to be all mysterious and sneaky or something. I don't even know why he did that. I was always taught, and I always say, if, if you have something important that you need to communicate to someone, you should be as clear and as simple as possible. So that way people don't have to invest a bunch of mental energy into trying to figure out what you're saying. You know, Jesus would have been so much more popular if he had just been more straight with people. Just get to the point. We don't need all these stories and these parables I don't know. I just think he would have been a whole lot more likable if he had just remembered that. I don't know. I guess nobody ever taught him that one. But Seriously, though, some of the things that came out of that man's mouth were so weird. I just had to walk away. I almost got the impression at some points that he was, like, trying to polarize the audience, the crowd. Like, like he was actually maybe trying to thin out the crowd a little bit or something like that. There was this one time, I actually heard him say this, okay? Honest truth. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. <laughs> Dead serious. He actually said that. Oh, man. I, so anyway, I, um, I work a lot downtown. And um, there was a time when I would just kind of hang around after work a little bit in the square just to hear him, hear him teach. But I think... After a while, I started, to, I started to think it might be too risky to be seen with him because you really never know who's watching and you don't want to be seen with the wrong crowd or the wrong person. But there was this one thing, this one thing he said that I'll probably never forget. It, it haunts me. Here's what he said. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow 
and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. At first, when I heard him say that, I thought it must be some sort of a political statement, like he was talking about social destruction or something, and I thought there's no way that this could be a religious statement, because I've never heard the Jewish leaders talk like that before. But the more I thought about it, the more I got this feeling in the pit of my stomach that he was talking about something more serious. I I got the impression he was talking about life and death, not just figures of speech. And that feeling I got in my stomach, it wasn't the good sort of feeling. It was more like a nauseous feeling, like you lose your appetite. And I think it's because... I generally try to avoid thinking about dying and what's going to happen to me after I die, mainly because it it freaks me out. I don't know what's going to happen to me after I die. And, And Jesus was talking about this narrow gate and this wide gate, and I think what he was saying is that some people are going to live for eternity, and others are going to miss out. And it seemed like he was saying that the people who are on this wide path through this wide gate are the ones who miss out and the ones who find this narrow gate that's apparently hard to squeeze through, they're the ones who get eternal life. And sometimes I think to myself, what if I'm one of those guys on the wide path? Well, I'll tell you, this one thing I know, okay, I I remember this from from the days when I was a little boy in the synagogue, I know one thing. If you want to be good with God, you've got to follow the rules. Got to follow the rules. At least, at least the big ones, right? Like, like the Ten Commandments. And I don't know about you guys, but I think I'm doing pretty well with that. I mean, okay, what are they? Um, don't kill anyone. Good there. Never done that. Don't commit adultery, so don't cheat on my wife. Fine there. Um, Don't steal anything. Okay, so I've never stolen anything big. Okay, so I'm fine there. Uh, What else? Don't, um, um, okay, so I can't can't really remember the rest of them, but that's not the point. See, the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that as far as the law is concerned, you know, the big parts of the law, the Ten Commandments, I kind of got it covered. And okay, I'm sure that I've, I've broken one or two at some point in my life, but who hasn't? <laughs> right? Who hasn't? What's God going to do? Throw me into hell for sinning once or twice? Come on. <laughs> I mean, the way I see it, as long as you follow most of the law, most of the time, you're fine. It's important to use logic in these kinds of things. It's, it's important to just use your, use your brain. So when you think about this logically, it's got to be like almost everything else in life where there's a balance to these things, where God just sort of looks at your, your good qualities, the good things about you, and then he looks at your mistakes and the things that you probably could have done better, and, and he weighs them out on this scale. And as long as the good outweighs the bad, I can't really think of a scenario where you come up short.
You know that, um, you know that narrow path that Jesus talked about, that, that narrow gate? I bet it's all about following the rules. I mean, look at the Jewish leaders. That's how they do it. That's what they're all about. Traditions and rituals and wash this and sprinkle that. I mean, that's probably just the price of admission to squeeze through this narrow gate. I don't know, but at the same time, who can really live that way? I mean, really, who can live in a way where you're following the law perfectly all the time? It just seems exhausting. So I'm going to tell you something right now. Now, I would never say this in public. Okay, this is between you and me. But sometimes I think maybe the Jewish leaders, like the scribes and the Pharisees, maybe, maybe they're just getting it all wrong. What if, what if Jesus meant something totally different by that, that narrow gate? What if it's not about following the law at all? Mm, that, that reminds me of something. So... so <laughs> I didn't actually hear this myself, okay, but there was this rumor that was going around that Jesus actually claimed to be the only way to have eternal life. And that you, you literally have to be friends with him to be okay with God, and that's the only way. <laughs> Can you believe he actually said that? But it's even more than that. I heard that everyone else, he's going to Throw into hell. Man, I don't know about you, but that just rubs me the wrong way. Come on. Who does this guy think he is? Like he's got some super exclusive club that you have to be a member of in order to be okay with God. I know a lot of good people, like genuinely good people, who probably do a fine job of following the law. I happen to be one of them. And I don't have a single friend or acquaintance who's a part of this exclusive Jesus club. So what does that mean? That me and all the people I know are like on God's blacklist? Come on. It's not like, not like I ever did anything to, uh, or I ever had anything against God. You know, if you ask me, it's just pretty narrow-minded to think that there's only one way to be okay with God? See, back to the logic thing. Got to use your head with this stuff. To me, it makes so much more sense that there would be lots of different paths to the same destination. You got your, your law. You got your animal sacrifice. Granted, Jesus is probably one of those, but I'm sure that there are others. I mean, how arrogant for him to say that his way is the only way that works. The God I know is more tolerant than that. He's more, he's more open-minded than that. Well, anyway, that's the, the wide gate. And like I said, it just it haunts me. I, I, I think about it a lot. But I, I guess it's not like any of that even matters now because... He's dead. I was actually there that day. Did I mention that? I was there. And, and it was kind of weird because I've never seen a group of people get so upset about the words a man says. I've seen religious fanatics come through town and say all kinds of offensive things. And 
the people, yeah, they get upset, they get all up in arms, and they swear at the guy, they might even spit at him. But over time, it just kind of goes away. The people go back to their normal, everyday lives, and it fizzles out. But this thing with Jesus, it's like the people took it to a whole new level. Now, as far as I know, Jesus never killed anyone. He never even hurt anyone. He never stole anything. He just said some words that offended some people. And before you know it, he's being crucified for it. It's funny, the whole thing, when I looked at it, just sort of seemed like like a landslide. Once it gained some momentum, it just built and built and built to the point where the religious leaders would stop at nothing until he was dead. It, it felt so inevitable. Like this man's death had to happen. And there was just no other way around it. That was strange. But on the other hand, though, if we're being honest, he probably had it coming. He just kept poking the beehive with that stick. He, he, if he really wanted to win the hearts of the people, if he wanted to gain a, a political advantage, he should have just changed his message. It's that simple. It's not that hard. You change the message. He should have known that if you push against the system that hard again and again and again, the system will take you down. I'm surprised he didn't know that. But at some point... You know, if, if, if the whole society and all of the public gets behind something like this, you've got to believe that there's some truth in it. At some point, you have to have some faith in public opinion. I mean, it's not like we can all be wrong about the same thing at the same time, right? That'd be ridiculous. Well, truth is, I, I don't know everything that Jesus did. Maybe, maybe he really did do something to deserve death. It's just a shame because, I mean, from my perspective, he, he looked like a pretty nice guy. Well, whatever. Um, hey, I wonder what we're having for dinner tonight. I was assigned personal security detail for the master during the battle at Gethsemane. We were deep in hostile territory. I covered his back while the master was down on his knees, engaged in combat with enemy forces. I've never seen the master fight like he did that night. He was, he was sweating blood. During my tour of duty, my unit provided support for the master on a number of different missions. We fought alongside him during the 40-day battle in the wilderness. That was the time when the enemy came at us with temptation. A weapon of mass destruction I haven't seen him use with such force since the Garden of Eden. During those 40 days under heavy enemy fire in the wilderness, the master became so skilled in spiritual combat, he surpassed us all. He, we paled in comparison to him. We worshipped him. We honored him. We revered him. Every command he gave. We listened and we followed. We obeyed. 
without hesitation, without question, because he is the master. If you'd known him and served him as long as I have, you'd, you'd know there is no one like him, no one I'd rather fight for. We gave the master aerial and ground support on a number of other missions. Each one led us closer and closer to the final objective. And then, all of a sudden, there we were, Golgotha, the final objective. The time was 1,500 hours. My platoon was positioned on the western side of the hill, along with our entire company. The southern brigade was two clicks to the, to the right. We had a fleet in the air providing surveillance and firepower from directly overhead. We had equal coverage on the north and on the western sides of the hill an infinite number of angelic troops. The heavenly army of the Most High God all assembled in perfect battle formation. They didn't even know we were there. They didn't even know we had them surrounded. They were so fixated on the master. They were so obsessed and, and blinded by what they thought was their big moment of victory. They didn't even know we had the high ground. They didn't know they were surrounded by a, an innumerable angelic army, each of us with our weapons drawn. We had them under our thumb. So we looked to the master and we waited for the signal to engage. The signal he never gave. We studied his face. We looked for a, a raised eyebrow or a, a head nod, even some deliberate eye contact. The signal to engage the enemy, nothing. There was no signal. We had the enemy in our crosshairs that day. And you should know that if we had unleashed the full measure of our firepower on the enemy, forget about nuclear weapons, it would have consumed him with the force of a thousand exploding stars. There would have been no further trace of Satan or his army. The insurrection would have been terminated. But that's not the way it happened. We had a strict directive from the master. Do not engage. And that was the point when I realized this mission was not standard protocol. This was an entirely different kind of rescue mission. The master wasn't surrendering, and he wasn't pleading for us to rescue him. He was executing a tactical maneuver. He was in complete control of the situation, and everything was going according to his plan. I and my troops were not there to save him. He was there to save them, the humans. The humans were his prize. Do you realize that on that day, 
he gave up an opportunity to save himself and permanently terminate the enemy for an opportunity to have a relationship with the humans. The heavenly army of the Most High God stood by with superior firepower and optimal position, and we watched our master die. That prize must have been well worth it for him. I felt like a worm, not a man. I was scorned by the people. They despised me. Everybody who looked at me mocked me. By that time, my hearing was pretty much gone, but I could see their mouths moving. I could see the swear words they were hurling at me while they just wagged their heads. They said, my father would have rescued me if he delighted in me. That really hurt. My body felt like liquid, like it was just entirely made out of water. My bones were all out of joint. They were so out of place I could have counted them all if I wanted to. My heart just melted like wax, just turned to liquid right there in my chest. The strength of my body was all dried up like a chalky shard of pottery. My tongue was so swollen and fat, it stuck to my jaws. The whole thing was like being laid down in the bottom of an open grave, being buried alive, one shovelful at a time. Now I suppose I could go on and tell you some more about all the pain and the suffering that I went through on that day, but I figure by this time you've already seen a bunch of movies and read books about all that. So why don't I tell you about pain of a different kind? The pain of bearing sin for the first time. So you have to understand that sin was foreign to me. Never once in my entire life had I experienced the sting of sin. Think of it like a skilled violinist who has a perfectly tuned ear from birth. I'm kind of like that violinist who never once played a single note out of tune. Doesn't even know what it sounds like to, to hear a note that's out of tune. But that day when I took on your sin, it's like all of a sudden my violin went out of tune for the first time in history. It was like this horrible, obnoxious, grating sound that was, was entirely unfamiliar and, and revolting. When I took the sin of the entire human race into my sinless body, it was like a million out-of-tune violins, each one playing a different, unique, horrible note, all in my ears at once, just ravaging my sense of perfect pitch. You know that feeling of guilt you get when you have done something against God's will? That sharp 
feeling in, the, in, in your stomach. I know what that feels like too. I'm sure that's uncomfortable, an uncomfortable feeling for you, but for me, it's crippling because I hate sin far more than you do. On that day, I felt the pain of guilt for every sin that's ever been committed by every person who's ever existed in the past and every person who will ever exist in the future. But it's more than that. See, I and my Father are one. We've been united since before the beginning, since eternity in the past. What that means is that we've enjoyed nothing but perfect fellowship for our entire existence. Perfect fellowship. I know that that term might be really hard for you to understand from a human perspective, but think of it like, like a marriage where there is no dissension, where there's no disagreements, no power struggle, no envy, just perfect unity to the extent that both members of the relationship are literally one being. That's what my father and I experienced since the beginning. That day on the hill of crucifixion, when I took on your sin, at that moment, my sweet fellowship with my father was broken. For the first time in eternity, I felt the displeasure of my father. It's even worse than that. I felt his fury, his rage, his unbridled wrath against sin and evil because I had it all over me. He couldn't even look at me. He couldn't associate with me. In that moment, he cut me off and he cast me out. And it was excruciating. But that was the plan. That was the plan that my father and I had put together since before the beginning, before Adam and Eve, before anything. That was the plan. I saw all of this coming because I designed it. And I rejoiced when it came. I was fully aware, hanging there on the cross, of all the power at my disposal to make this thing stop. You think I didn't see that multitude of the heavenly army all around me? I was in the driver's seat. Me. Maybe, maybe you wonder what it looked like from my perspective. From the perspective of there looking out from the cross at all the people. Do you want to know what I saw? Let me describe it to you. I saw a Roman soldier. I saw a Jewish leader. I saw a disciple. I saw an Israelite. I saw a builder. I saw a baker. I saw an anarchist. I saw an astronaut. I saw a drunk and a child. I saw a terrorist and a homemaker and a pastor, and a prostitute. I saw a football player. I saw a philanthropist. I saw an ISIS fighter. 
I saw a servant and a soldier and a thief and a teacher. I saw a nice old lady and a lesbian and a grandpa and a Buddhist. And I saw a mom and a dad. I saw an activist. I saw a drug dealer. I saw a scientist and an assembly line worker and a police officer and a politician and a taxi driver and you. I saw you. You're the one who put me there. It's important for you to know that. It was your sin all over me that put me through all of that pain and anguish. Even the tiny one that you thought that no one ever even knew about or even cared about, that one pinned me to the cross and held me there. I felt the agony of every single time you've disobeyed God. Even the, the sins that you won't commit for another 20 years. I felt the pain and I felt the trauma of each one of those and it killed me. Because my father does not tolerate sin. He can't even stand to be near it. So the way for him to get rid of it was to take it off you and put it on to me, the perfect carrier, and then to cast me off like a disease and destroy me. Do you have any idea how offensive it is to me when people suggest that there are other ways to get to my father? If there was any other way for you to be right with God, don't you think I would have picked that one? I am the narrow gate. It's me. Know me. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the only way for you to be reconciled to God. As horrific as this whole experience was, I want you to know that I volunteered for the job. I did it because I wanted to, because it brought me great joy. The thought of permanently repairing the breach between God and man, the thought of enjoying a relationship with you, so worth it. I'd do it all over again if I had to. But that won't be necessary. Just wait and see what I did three days later.